0: If you've noticed, uh, for the last several weeks, we've been on a journey. We've been working through Hebrews chapter 11. We've been hearing about the saints of the Old Testament. We've heard from the Hebrews, uh, the writer of Hebrews, about by faith Noah, by faith Abraham, by faith Sarah, and today we're on by faith, uh, and uh, we're on by faith Joseph. So we're going to look at Joseph, the, the guy who starts out as an immature little Joe, Uh, but then matures into a godly man in the end. And so I want to take that faith journey with you. If you'll turn, if if you have your Bibles, to chapter 37 of Genesis. We're going to explore Genesis a lot today. We're going to flip around, and we're going to talk about three movements in the life of Joseph. Specifically, we're going to talk about his dysfunctional family, and then the sovereign God, and then the gospel ending, dysfunctional family, sovereign God, gospel ending. So if you have your notes today, write in the first note uh, that we're dealing here with a highly dysfunctional family. That's where the journey starts. And I don't know about you, but I think we all have that crazy aunt or that kooky uncle that shows up at Thanksgiving every year. We all have skeletons in our closet. I think you can identify probably with a dysfunction. Let's look at that, though, in chapter uh, 37, verse 2. It says that his daddy was Jacob. Now, Jacob was also called Israel, remember, because he was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph is one of those sons. In verse 2, it tells us that Joseph is 17 years of age. Now, if you have teenagers in your home, or if you can remember being a teenager yourself, You know, with teenagers comes an amount of drama. Drama always follows the teen years, and it did with Joseph. He's an immature little teenager. In verse 2, it says that he brought his daddy a bad report. What does that mean? It means that he was a tattletale. He actually was was trying to, to, uh, to eat away at his brother standing under the father at every chance he got. He would criticize them and bring bad reports to the father. And uh, the little tattletale, it gets worse. In verse 2, we see more dysfunction growing in the family. It says, He was the boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Now, what does that mean? It means that Jacob, Israel, has four wives. These two are common law concubines and then he has a wife called Leah, and if you'll remember, Leah in Hebrew means weary eyes or cow-like face. <laughs> she was stunningly unattractive, in other words, and she was not Daddy Jacob's favorite wife. His favorite wife was Rachel, right? He loved Rachel. And guess whose son, um, guess who's, uh, who was uh, Joseph's mama? It was Rachel. So Joseph is the favorite son of the favorite wife. You think that's going to cause a little bit of family dysfunction? I would say so. If you've ever had a favorite child or maybe if you were a favorite child, you know it's going to cause dissension. So what we have here if you'll is a highly dysfunctional Brady Bunch situation, okay? To make matters worse, Daddy Jacob in verse 3 gives Joseph what? A coat of many colors. So that every time they see that little immature tattletale brat coming, they're going to be reminded by that coat that he is the favored son of the favored wife. I think there's some family dysfunction going on. And look at what it causes in verse 4. You see it. But when the brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the other brothers... They hated him for it and could not speak peacefully to him. Could not speak peacefully to him. They hated him in verse 4, hated him in verse 5, hate him again in verse 8. You see what's happening? Growing dysfunction, growing jealousy in the house of Israel, growing hatred and jealousy and sibling rivalry, so much so that in verses 9 to 12, it gets worse. In fact, he starts having dreams about his brothers, and the dream is this, that one day the brothers will bow down at his feet, and their very existence is going to depend on the immature little brat, Joseph, all right? But that doesn't sit well with them, does it? it doesn't sit well. They become bitter with rage, and they hatch a plan to get rid of Joseph altogether. Look at verse 18. They saw him from afar... And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Here comes the dreamer. Has human nature changed much in the last few thousands of years? We still have sibling rivalries, don't we? We still have animosities and dysfunction in our families. We still have jealousies. Some parents still show favoritism to one child or another. Sometimes grandparents show favoritism as well. So they hatch a plan to get rid of him. But remember, they don't kill him. They sell him to a group of merchants traveling down to Egypt. They sell him for 30 pieces of silver. But they not only sell him, they hatch a plan to tell their father Jacob that he's been torn apart by wild beasts. So, how dysfunctional is that? Here's family strife and relational dysfunction, fill this in, are signs of a sinful and broken world. Sinful and broken world. The Bible says as much. David says in Psalm 51, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. I was a sinner from my birth, he says. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good, And never sins. And finally, Jesus leveled with us in Mark 10 No one is good but God alone. And I think you need to hear that this morning because sometimes I think when we see in our own families uh, dysfunction and sin and broken relationships, sometimes we think we're the only people dealing with it. But you're not. We're all in the same boat, we're all struggling, we all need God in the midst of it all. So remember this the truth is that we all fall short. We all hurt one another. We all have dysfunctional relationships to one degree or another. And guess what it caused for Joseph and his brothers and Jacob? Think about it. It caused a man to grieve the loss of his only son. For the next 20 years, Jacob would grieve over the loss of Joseph. It caused Joseph, uh, imagine being put into the pit by your brothers. Imagine the traveling caravan Pulling away so that you see your homeland in the distance. Imagine the grief of a 17-year-old child cut off from his family for the next 20 years. That family was in a mess. Imagine the brothers who keep that deep, dark secret of what really happened to Joseph from their father for the next 20 years. It was a dysfunctional family in need of God's redemptive grace. So let's look at that sovereign God who redeems this family. When we talk about sovereign, what do we mean with regard to God? The sovereignty of God is the biblical teaching that all things are under God's rule and control and that nothing happens without his direction and permission. So God is sovereign. Paul will say in Ephesians 1.11 that in Jesus we've obtained an inheritance. We've been predestined according to the purposes of God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Some things, no, all things according to the counsel of his will. So God is globally working in the world and also personally working in Joseph's life. Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight says this, For the kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Now I think that's a word we need to hear, particularly in this election cycle. Because many of us are wringing our hands and we're all worried about who's going to be our next president. Who's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? We remember that God is working both personally in our lives and globally. So write that down as a sense of comfort. God's rule and control are both personal in the events in the lives of individuals and global events, working out his good and perfect will amongst the nations of the world. So take that to heart. I saw this meme this week that says, No matter who's the next president, Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is sovereign, my friends. He is sovereign. And we see God's sovereign hand coming into the life of Joseph and working with his brothers as well. Turn with me to chapter 39 of Genesis if you have your Bibles. We see the sovereignty of God on display. Chapter 39, verse 1. Where does Joseph end up? It says in the house of Potiphar, a high-ranking official in Pharaoh's courts. You see what God's doing? He's moving the puzzle pieces around so that Joseph is going to be in the right place at the right time so that he can protect and save his family and protect the covenant promises of God. We serve an awesome God, my friends. He works globally and personally to bring about his good and perfect will. Because remember what's going to happen? There's going to be seven years of drought coming in the Middle East. And God's got to bring the family, the 12 tribes, to Egypt to protect them and care for them. So that's what God is doing. But God's also working in Joseph's life personally. So fill in the blank there. God is also pruning and shaping, actually. Fill in the last blank first. God placed Joseph in just the right place. to to begin to move in Joseph's life for God's good and perfect plan to be fulfilled, which is to bring them to Egypt to protect God's promises. Now, also, he's working personally in Joseph's life to move him up to be the man of faith he's called Joseph to be, not the immature, selfish little kid, but the man of faith that God can use. And so that's what we have next. God is also pruning and shaping Joseph into a man, a faith that God can use. We need to realize that God prunes and shapes us as well. Sometimes you go through a difficult situation in your life, but there's always something that God is teaching. God is always using that as a corrective opportunity to make you a better person. Hebrews 12, 6 affirms that. It says that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves, and he chastises every son that he receives. So God is like a, a father. And if you're a father or a mother, you know that sometimes there's positive reinforcement. If you do this, honey, I'll give you that. You want to shape and mold your children. Sometimes there's negative reinforcement. If you do that, you'll go out and cut a switch. At least that was how discipline was done when I was a kid. But both positive and negative are meant to shape and mold your child into a better, more moral, more faithful child, and then to an adult. So that's what we see in his life. We see the man becoming Joseph, a man of God. We see that in chapter 39, verse 7. As Potiphar's wife, the the master of the household, the wife comes on to him. It says in verse 7, And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph, and said, lie with me. Twice she comes on to Joseph and says, sleep with me. Does he react like the selfish little kid we once knew? No, he rebuffs her and rejects her. He's now a man of God on God's, uh, with feet squarely planted on God's moral option there. But let me tell you, No, (laughs) hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, right? We learn that Potiphar's wife in verses 12 to 19 rips the clothes off Joseph, wrongly accuses him of raping her, and then he's thrown into prison. But remember, we serve a sovereign God. Where does he go into prison? Well, it says in chapter 39, verse 20, to the place where the king's prisoners were confined. These are not just the lowlifes of Egypt. These weren't the thugs of Egypt. These are the king's prisoners with the king's guard. God is putting him in just the right place at just the right time to move up in rank so that he can protect his family. What a great God we serve. So, with every setback in Joseph's life, he is learning that God's sovereign hand is mighty to save in any situation. In fact... We see this mature Joseph. Um, remember, he was using his gift of dream interpretation to lord over and make fun of his brothers. Later on in this chapter 41 of Genesis, verse 16, we see a humble Joseph. Pharaoh asks him, Where do you get these interpretations from? And he said, It's not in me. Joseph said, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. In other words, this gift comes from God. He brings the increase, and he's going to use this gift to bless my family. That's a different Joseph than we saw early on. So get this. Joseph once used his dream gift for personal gain, which caused his family strife and jealousy. He's now using his gift to the glory of God, whose sovereign hand is upon him. He gets promoted, of course. Promoted to become prime minister of Egypt, God moved all the puzzle pieces together so that he could be at the right place at the right time. God could confirm and protect his covenant promises. Our God acts faithfully. Now let's bring it home. What does this mean about the gospel? Well, here's the deal. Some of you say, I don't like the Old Testament because it's full of law and judgment, Some of you say, I like the New Testament because it's full of grace and forgiveness. Well, let me tell you, this is grace and forgiveness. Just think with me, if you will, for a moment. Capture the scene. Put yourself in Joseph's place. Imagine that you had been put into a pit, sold into slavery. Imagine your daddy has had 20 years of grief and you hadn't seen your family for 20 years because of what your brothers did. Imagine them keeping that deep, dark secret from your family. Now, what do you do the next time you see your brothers? Well, probably if you're dysfunctional, you're going to seek revenge, right? I mean, Joseph at this point is the prime minister of the most powerful nation in the world. He can crush them. He can bring judgment upon them. He can throw them into prison, but he doesn't. Genesis chapter 45, verse 5, we see one of the most beautiful family reunions ever. Instead of holding a grudge against his brothers and crushing them and continuing the dysfunction in that family, what does he do? It says this, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. In other words, God had a greater plan than you selling me into slavery. He had a plan to turn evil into good and to protect our family through what you did. And in verses 15 of that same chapter, he kissed his brothers. He wept with his brothers. He forgave his brothers because he served a sovereign God. And in today's reading, yet again in chapter 50, verse 19, he reaffirms his love and forgiveness to his brothers. He said, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God had a greater purpose, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. God fulfilled his covenant promises through evil. God can work in spite of evil in our lives. So what Joseph learned is that God's hand was upon him in good times and in bad. Do you realize that? Romans 8 28 says this, for we all know, for those who love God, that all things work out for the good, for those who are called according to his purposes. By faith, Joseph was able to forgive his brothers. And that anticipates the gospel. That's what the gospel's all about breaking the cycle of dysfunction, breaking the cycle of violence, breaking the cycle of jealousy. And so Joseph is really pointing us to the power of the gospel to end the cycle of sin and dysfunction. You know, the Bible says uh, in Romans chapter 5, it says, For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God had every reason to pour out his wrath upon us. But he, in a greater way than even Joseph, offered love and forgiveness instead of wrath and punishment. And he offered that to his family, the church. And so rather than coming uh, at us with the judgment we deserve, it says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. My friends, if you are trapped in any kind of family dysfunction, If you have any broken relationships, perhaps you haven't spoken with someone for 20 years or more, perhaps they hurt you profoundly, apply that gospel to your life. God loved you in spite of the fact that you were a sinner. Christ died for you while you were still a sinner so that his family could be redeemed and healed. Now, I call on you to apply that to your family because that's what Joseph did, right? Joseph said, I love you. I forgive you. So never forget this, never forget that God can use your past, no matter how hurtful or painful or dysfunctional it was. We all are broken vessels to some extent, but God's redemptive power is greater than all of our dysfunction. Remember, in the beginning of the story, it said that their dysfunction was so bad that they could not speak a peaceful word to Joseph. And yet at the end of the story, Joseph speaks a peaceful word to them. I love you, I love you, I forgive you. So at the end of the story, Joseph, by faith, chose to love and forgive his brothers. And with that, the family was healed and God's covenant promises were preserved. One of my favorite songs is a song I want us to meditate on today. Um, It's in Christ alone. And there's this one verse that I think speaks to our scripture today. And it goes like this. No power of hell nor scheme of man. Remember, Joseph was a victim to the schemes of his brother. But no power of hell nor scheme of man can ever pluck me from God's hand. God is sovereign, my friends. God works in spite of our sinfulness. God works through our dysfunction. And I want you just to think of those relationships in your life that may need a sovereign God to come in and to heal, to heal through forgiveness. So, uh, as we meditate on the song on that message today, won't you stand with me and let's, let's sing this verse of In Christ Alone and find strength in this today.